Have fun plans for the outdoors? Make the memories last with the best outdoor coolers and drinkware. Celebrating 10 years of cool, Orca was founded in 2012, born from the idea of making a hard-sided cooler that beat out all the rest. Orca coolers are built to be as strong as the adventures you take them on. That's why they have a lifetime warranty while giving you world-class maximum temperature retention. Orca's drinkware offers the same high quality, keeping your drinks icy cold or hot for hours, and they look great while doing it. Their stainless steel vacuum-sealed tumblers and martini cup are perfect companions for your next outdoor adventure. Go to orcacoolers.com backslash bourbon for 15% off your order. That's orcacoolers.com backslash bourbon for 15% off. Orca, make it last. Today's show is also sponsored by our friends at distilleryproducts.com. If you are a store, you're a group, you're a blog, you're a podcast, you're a distillery, whatever it is, you need laser edge glassware at wholesale prices. Reach out to me. I'd be happy to get you in touch with the whole family behind distilleryproducts.com doing amazing things. We use them. You should too at distilleryproducts.com. Hey, y'all. I want to let you know we've teamed up with our friends at pickshop.com. They have an app, the Picks app. It is a new awesome thing that we're, we're moving a lot of our stuff to. We're moving tastings there. We're moving posts there. We're not going to leave Instagram and Facebook and all the other places, but Pix is this really cool thing that we're getting to build with them. We're getting to build how you post. We're getting to build how you go ahead and put in a tasting, and these tastings will match you up to other people and other whiskeys that you are very compatible with based off of what you've put in for your tastings. There's so much stuff. I can't even tell you enough in a minute, but go to pickshop.com, hit the link, get the app, get in there, start tasting, start posting, be a part of the community. We're going to be there. You should be there too. Go to pickshop.com and get the app. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is John Edwards. Zeke Baker is on assignment, but together we make the Dad's Rick of Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us a part of your day. It's a very special day. We have a very special guest because Zeke and I are dumb. When we're dumb, we go to the experts to tell us about the things that we're dumb about. We're, we're very upfront about this. Y'all know it. We're not the sharpest crayon in the box. And that's why we're going to Gareth Moore from Virginia Distillery. He is going to explain to us, you might have heard out there right now, TTB has their initial definition of what an American single malt is. But for those of us that drink whiskey that is not malted, you know, maybe it has a little bit of malt, maybe it's got some high malt, but not like a single malt. Some of you might drink scotch. Some of you might drink Irish whiskey. Americans do it too. That's why we're going to Gareth to tell us what the hell an American single malt is, as well as learn about Virginia Distillery and all the stuff they have going on there. They have some finishes. They just released a bourbon finish on the American single malt, a cuvee, and a sherry. So without further ado, our friend Gareth Moore, thank you. You are the CEO of Virginia Distillery. Welcome to Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Excellent. Thank you, John. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you having me around and uh, sounds like it's going to be fun. It is going to be a blast. And let's just start off with what is American single malt? Let's get right to it. I, I could ask you how you are. We've been talking for a good 45 minutes. So, I mean, that, that could just stay <laughs> between doing, us. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, no, that's it. But that, we'll just leave it at that. But, you know, what is American single malt? American single malt, before I go into the definition, I'd just like to think about it as... It's something that Americans didn't invent, right? You know, America, single malt in general was invented by the Scots, by the Irish, by you know, the folks in Japan. We didn't come up with this definition of having, you know, a, a whiskey that's only made from one grain, that's one distillery, that's, you know, having all these other definitions. It, it was overseas that that definition came up. And so when we think about American single malt, we're thinking about something that has already been made, has already been defined, but we're doing it here in the U.S. And that might sound like, okay, great, you know, we're just copying someone else. But I like to think that that's part of a very long tradition in the U.S. of uh, not copying, you know, something overseas, not taking something that's, you know, from the old world and trying to bring it to the new world and just copy it. 
right? We're trying to we're trying to make it better. We're trying to make it our own. And you know, whether you're thinking about you know, pizza or you're thinking about uh, hamburgers or or something more recent like like a sushi or something like that, right? We we don't just copy what's going on overseas. We we uh, we we make it our own. And you know, I like to use the sushi example because it's not something that uh, you know we copy exactly. Imagine if you had like a, a Philadelphia roll and and try to sell that in, in Tokyo, you would you would you'd have a hard time. But we like cream cheese here, and uh, makes makes it our own. And that's the same thing that we're trying to do with uh, American Sugar Mall. I kind of feel like some of the stuff they did with the American single malt is they took the definition internationally of kind of what's a single malt, and then they added some of the stuff from bourbon just to kind of make it American, like the 160 proof or less. What are things that are distinctly American? It's like, all right, your proof has to be over 80, and it has to be less than 160, and it's like that's the sweet spot of where we want it to be. Certain things, I I feel like it was an overlay when you say make it better, and I know I'm tipping my hand that I'm smarter than I let on about this, but... But, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said, right? We're trying to move it into the American system. And with some of those things like, you know, 700 liters for a cask or, you know, 160 proof, those aren't things that we pulled from Scotland or, or Ireland or Japan. We, we pulled those just from the TTB's existing definitions. And we were trying to figure out how do we get something that's within the American definition of whiskey, Right, you know the existing different layers of how they define whiskey, not the subcategories of you know bourbon or rye or anything else, but something that we're not kind of kowtowing to what they say in Scotland, and it has to be three years, and it has to be used oak, but we're going under the American definitions, and that's that's what Americans have always done. And that's what we're trying to do is 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 not just say hey Scotland defined it exactly for us, but the essence of it of uh, it has to be one distillery. Malt means hundred percent barley. That's what we're going for. And what do you think the biggest difference with, for people that understand, right? There's a Highland, a Lowland, a Speyside, and Isla. Everything has a different type of flavor. Isla is where mm-hmm. all the people that taste scotch and go, I hate it. It tastes like a Band-Aid. You know, chances yeah. are that is from Isla and is not necessarily indicative of all the, the other places in Scotland. But why is it that American single malts don't have that acetone side to it that some of the scotches do where you, know, you immediately have a turnoff if your palate does not agree with that? But I feel like American single malt is a much more approachable barley drink than scotch can be sometimes yeah yeah i mean you know i mean it's to each their own but i mean the way i think about it is that if if you're looking at scotland obviously there are these very defined regions of different styles that you're getting from isla or Speyside, highland campbelltown lowlands all this stuff but um if you look at the u.s we are a hell of a lot bigger right than 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 you, than you are in scotland and our climates are a heck of a lot more um extreme uh, both, you know, in any given region, hot summers, cold winters, to how how dry it gets, how how wet it gets, how hot it gets, and you know, those very different climate extremes mean that we have different maturation environments that are going to make any given distillery across the country very very different than the next, as compared to Scotland, where they're all kind of you know similar next to each other. Anything else we need to know about Americans? I mean, I feel like this is the intro to the rest of the, the show. This is the intro to what the hell is American single malt. So now we could go talk about Virginia distillery, but anything else we need to know about the category before we get started? I think the number one thing to know about the category is that it's kind of a, a sleeping giant. There are tons of producers out there. There's there's hundred odd distilleries, you know, two hundred plus uh, different products out there that are American single malts, and people generally don't know about them. They're they're generally from craft producers, but they're really interesting. There's a huge variety of them, and I think there's a sleeping giant with this new announcement by the TTB that. Uh, people are going to know about pretty soon it has been a running joke and i feel bad for saying it but you know it was constantly anybody who produced american single malt was like it's coming it's coming it's coming start investing in american single malt now you know like i'll invest i'm not gonna necessarily invest in the bottles because the bottles are just gonna get better over time once the ttb actually defines what it is and 
these craft distillers have more than three years to to whip something together. You know, it's fun to taste the bottles now, but I don't think like those bottles are going to be worth, you know, what certain people that might do whiskey valuations think that they're going to be worth at the end of the day, but they're good. And, and I really think that it was a great category. I just didn't know if it was ever going to be, you know, like if Americans were ever going to catch on, you know, I mean, you're right in that there, there's not like kind of a defining moment of like when we're going up against like the, uh, the champs of, of, uh, single malts with the Scots. Right. But, you know, I always like to be reminded of, uh, what was it Chateau Montelain, the, uh, judgment of, of Paris, right. Where you had these, you know, yahoos from California making white wines that, uh, you know, these guys in France, you know, thought were a joke, but in a blind tasting, suddenly they made a great movie about it, right? Suddenly it's like, oh, wow, they, these compete with the best of the best of what we thought were the best of being these, you know, old world French wines. And we haven't had one quite yet uh, in the American single malt category that's, that's taken on um, one of the Scots, but I think we're really, really close. And I think it's a moment like that that is going to really put not just, you know, whatever distillery is able to do that, but the entire category uh, on the map. I think that is a fair point, and I can't wait until that happens. And moving on, tell us a little bit about yourself. You you graduated from Boston College. Funny enough, I, I said I wouldn't tell you about me. I did not tell you this fact. I wanted yeah. to go to BC. The only reason I didn't is because your housing was not guaranteed for four years. So that was the <laughs> right. only reason. Right. And I was like, I don't want to pay for an I, apartment. I got, I got tripled my uh, my freshman year. It was miserable. It was it was much smaller than this office, and uh, there were three of us, and we had to live there. It was it was the worst. Yeah, the housing situation in Chestnut Hill was not a great place to be. So I, it was yeah. like I would love to go to BC probably not in the cards you got an mba from georgetown you are the yep. president of the virginia distillers association you're on discus okay. craft advisory council what don't you do i'm very bad at doing the dishes um i'm not going to clean up for my, after myself sometimes i don't help enough with bath time these are just the complaints i heard in the last two or three hours the kids but, have a complaint uh, box yeah yeah exactly exactly but yeah that's what i don't do but you do a lot of other stuff just an amazing resume what even got you into whiskey in the first place it's a long complicated story like uh most things but uh i do a lot of different things just like my 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 late father i like to think that you know idle hands uh you know you, you keep busy you keep out of trouble uh just be productive but uh yeah so let's see it goes back to uh 2011 my uh my father was a Irish immigrant came over in 72, scholarship kid, um, mom came over in 76, and uh, dad lived out the American dream that is uh, still very, very much alive. He was a tech guy, uh, got a bunch of uh, you know, degrees, and, and then you know, started tech companies and had a few of them. 2011, he sold his primary operating company, did very well for himself, and decided that well, he was only 61, 62, but uh, decided that he wanted to start the next great uh, American whiskey company. Despite being Irish, you know, of course, the marketing people would love if he was Scottish or if we made an Irish whiskey, but he was an Irish guy that liked uh, Scottish style uh, single malts, and uh, he decided to go after it. Dad, uh, he wasn't a terribly big guy. He, he was a lot smaller than me, but he felt he liked to think really big. The distillery system, the, the stills, the the tanks, and everything that he he bought were um, pretty big. Uh, in retrospect, started uh, started building the distillery in 2011. About 18 months into it, took a hard attack and passed. And uh, as I like to say, at, at that time, I was very, 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 very naive uh, about the industry. Now I'm now I'm just very, very naive. I, I dropped one of the the varies, uh, and was like, okay, great whiskey great work dad like i'm gonna keep doing this this is gonna be easy and fun and like a party and then like the narrator comes in it was not a party uh <laughs> it, it uh it took a long time we, we we kept on going let's see about uh another 18 months after dad passed we got the distillery actually um operational uh started making whiskey got our visitor center started at that time we started a brand we called vhw uh, I'm contractually obligated not to tell you what the H stands for. That means you have to Google it. We got a little tiff with the SWA, but uh, we uh, 
built that product, which was a blend of a Scottish single malt we imported, plus our own younger distillate, we put in port casks. We sold that from 2015 on to 2020, and that's when we launched our American single malt that we have been aging since 2015, and we call that uh, Courage and Conviction. As everybody knows, if you want to launch a brand that you've been working on for, for five years, you want to time it perfectly to coincide with the really the onset of a global pandemic, which we did perfectly. We timed it for April of 2020. It was very scary. It was uh, I was freaked out <laughs> at the front end. It was like, oh my God, I'm spending like the last five years on building this. And uh, now it's uh, a pandemic. It's good to be Irish. Better to be uh, lucky than smart. You know, people... People were able to, I guess, learn about the product, discovery brands as, as people were staying home. And uh, we were able to be part of um, a lot of things that uh, were happening during the pandemic. And uh, people learned about us. We got a little bit of wind in our sails and we've been doing well ever since. So that's the story. I really think the pandemic was either, you know, was what you made of it. And I'm not saying anything bad about the pan. Like this is not a, a commentary on covid in general, it's more just, you know, people were staying home and it was, do you want to reach out to them? And do you want to go live? Do you want to like, what are you doing? It then became a, is your social media active? Are you getting your whiskey in front of the right people and having them talk about it? And I hate that influencer word. I really do because I feel like influencer for the whiskey space is just give me free stuff instead of like it is somebody who is asking you for something free like when your team reached out and said we were going to do this podcast it was like would you like a bottle or would you like the the sample pack that has three two ounce samples i'm like i would rather have the three two ounce samples because i'd rather try your whole portfolio and we famously when people reach out we're like listen like if you're doing a podcast with us don't feel like you have to send us a bottle you should have gone for the bottle because we we wrap the bottles in like you know like 50 dollar bills it's just like this entire like tax evasion scandal that's uh, it's a good strategy but i think i think it's it, that's like every bad story i say that i found 20 dollars, and then all of a sudden your story's better but yeah I also feel like knowing people in the industry and being friends with people in the industry, I'm like, you could take a 750 and you could split that up. If you're just giving out two ounce samples to everyone, like you can split that up and have more people taste it and more people talk about it. And it's going to go sitting on somebody's shelf where they might've smelled it one time. And if they even opened it and I took a picture on Instagram, hooray, like Instagram is suppressing all alcohol content right now anyway. So like, what's it matter? Well, was there like a lovely back deck and like maybe a fall scene or maybe do you have a creek in your backyard? Because uh, that makes the whiskey taste better. Well, stickers definitely make the whiskey taste better. Any aftermarket Ooh. stickers on a single barrel and that like immediately yes. tastes better. Yes. That's how you make your you, your laptop actually runs faster if you put that on the back and it gets rid of malware. <laughs> you heard that from yeah. your dad who That's true. did tech companies. Absolutely. Oh, that was that was one of the things he said, you know, always have the courage of your convictions and use free stickers to get rid of malware. <laughs> so, um, those were the two things but, <laughs> that's what we grew up with. But I also think, <laughs> I mean, going back to it, right, you all did a very good job of the people that were in that space. And there were plenty of, I hate using the word influencer again, but there were like that, the scotch influencers within y'all have finally started to like talk to some people that were posting about bourbon, but you very quickly went to the the people like my buddy, Nate, who was single yep. malt daily at the time. Now he's just back to Nate Ghana, you know, my friend, yep. Brandon, the daily dram, like those folks that were actually like, I think single malt savvy, all those folks that are out there on Instagram and they're posting about scotch. You were like, Hey, do you want to try something else? And, um, you know, my buddy, Brett, my late friend, Brett was a huge fan of Virginia distillery. He talked about it all the time. He's like, you've got to try this. Brett said uh, some drinks in this room here. Yeah. Yeah. We have a great podcast with Brett where all we did. Do you know Denver from Denver and Lily? Have you met him yet? Uh, I've not met him. No. We had had a, a crazy day. Just they went up to Kentucky for a little bit and picked a barrel at Russell's and and then came down and we went to Zeke's house and we did this podcast 
and it was actually so long I split it up into two and we did nothing like we didn't talk about whiskey until I think 30 minutes left in the second one like half of the podcast was on who shot first Han or yeah you know and like yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I remember the first time uh meeting Brett it was uh it was very um I was in New York and I had to make it down to, to uh, Charlottesville. And I remember talking with like a friend up there. I was like, I got to make it down there. Like Scott Troopers down there. You didn't call him Brett, right? Yeah. The Scott Troopers there. I, and I was like, wait, what the fuck? Like what, what, what who you have to meet? I got to meet Scott Trooper. It's very important. And I just had it like in my mind because I hadn't met him. I, and to be honest, I hadn't like, you know, learned a lot about him. And it's like, I had this preconceived notion in my mind. And imagine, imagine like, if you didn't know anything about the industry and you just heard you got to beat this guy, Scott Trooper, right? He's coming to Charlottesville. You'd be like, you know, great, right? <laughs> you know, like some guy. You, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. And and I was it was high pressure, and you know, I, I think I called him Sir the first time I met him, and then you know, it's like three minutes into it, and you're like, man, this guy's just like a he's just like a guy, right? Like <laughs> just like a normal human, like amazing, like kind person, and uh, yeah, it takes it takes him a long time to be like, hey. We should probably talk about whiskey. Yeah. If we have to talk about whiskey, Brett, we can talk about it. But, you know, just would love to just talk with him uh, as a person. Funny enough. And this is for the people that are real OGs on Instagram, like Instagram wise. I feel like a lot of accounts popped up during pandemic and all that because people were bored and they're like, let me start an Instagram account. So for us that have been around you know, since 2016 on Instagram active and all that, like Brett was the first person who number one, like he had 60 something thousand followers when other people now people have triple digits, but like back then we whiskey accounts did not. And he also had the blue check Mark, which like hardly any whiskey influencer accounts had. And so I remember the first time like we started interacting and I was like, Oh my God, this is this verified person. Who's like, try to talk to me. Let's go. You know, and it was before we had our following and we were, you know, working our way up and it was at a time where I don't think you can do it. It helped that he was one of the best people you'd ever meet like just one of the nicest down-to-earth people you'd ever meet but it all started during a time where like instagram was still getting didn't have the algorithm it has now it didn't have reels it didn't have all that crap and it was like somebody when they built up that following you were like oh my god it's scotch trooper and then you meet him and you're like oh and and then in that entire market i mean there were people that you know i guess we're we're jealous of the success i mean there were people that you know didn't uh, give him the respect as one of those uh you know, leaders in, in, in a lot of big things. And uh, yeah, but God love him. I love that guy. Miss that guy very much. But yeah. but you, you know, going back to everything, you did find the right people to kind of get your whiskey in the hands of. Back in that time, was that the, the VHW that you were giving out to everyone? Or was yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Virginia, or VHW, I'm not allowed to say what the H stands for. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what we've been working on. And, you know, to be honest, we're, I mean, we're still selling a lot of that. Um, we, we got a little bit of a following of it that, uh, I mean, heck it's what 45% of what we sold in the last six months. And it's 40 bucks. It's not, it's not going to break the bank. Exactly. It wasn't the intention, right? It was kind of like this idea of like, okay, you know, real. I mean, it's like, you know, other people would sell clear spirits, right? We sold other people's blended with ours, right? It's just a way to, to kind of cut our own teeth. And we, we got a ton of learning out of it, right? I mean, the biggest thing we learned was about blending and, you know, of course, blending has this bad rap of like, oh, it's a blended scotch. Like, no, we're talking about blending different barrels, right? That we own. And you know to figure to make some mistakes, have batch four, which was nonsense, which went horribly wrong, and then it went horribly right. We we blended it back into like the best batch we've ever had. We're now like batch seventeen, but um, you know VHW, it, it was the intention was just almost like a bridge, right, from like when we started to hey, let's let's you know sell an American single malt, but uh, we learned a lot, and, and we're still selling a, a lot of it, so people like it. And uh, glad that we still have it on the market. And I think I missed a step here. I, a bad hosting because okay. we, we've been no having worries. fun. So your dad gets hosting. all this big stuff. I mean, he has the big cookers. He's got the big pots. He's got all that stuff. Yeah. You now have taken this over. Mm-hmm. 
what did you do? Did you call? Who'd you call besides Ghostbusters? I mean, like, <laughs> that was the first call. It was Ghostbusters, and we had a long conversation. And like, I literally got to meet with Dan Aykroyd. He's like, <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. He's like, like I have crystal vodka. I don't. I don't. Yeah. mess with whiskey. Yeah, I know. That's that. By the way, that's always the threat for like the guys in the bottling line. Is like if they complain. Like, okay, listen, here's the bottle I'm moving to. Uh, <laughs> just a little inside production joke there. Uh, but uh, yeah, so no, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing uh, whatsoever. Uh, not that I do now, but um, what we did is, is try to get smart people specifically because of the scale, right? So dad put us, dad blessed us with a situation of having a big scale to the distillery. So it's a 10,000 liter system. You can do about a million LPA. That's about a quarter million, um, you know, 4.5 liter cases. We're doing about a third of that right now. It's a big system. It's not economically efficient to run it slow. And so, you know, you can't, you can't say like, Oh, give me half a batch, right? (laughs) It's a a batch system. You're going to make no less than, you know, six, seven, eight casks at a time. And then if you're going to do that, you have to do four, five, six a week uh, to make it economically efficient. So we're producing a huge amount. If you're going to be producing a huge amount and you're in a new style, in a new system, in a new climate that hasn't been done before, that's a hell of a risk. And I I tend to be, uh, I guess like my father, my father was a big data and analytics guy. I, I, t- I tend to look at you know ways that we can tr- that we can kind of de-risk something, particularly at that scale, by getting a lot of input, getting a lot of you know outsiders that might know what they're doing better than we would. The first thing that we did was as we were building out the system, we realized, hey, we're going to have some uh, warehouses. Are we going to have dunnage warehouses like they would have in Scotland? Are we going to palletize them? The obvious answer to us was that we needed to have something that was at least going to at least have the upper and lower bounds of the climate similar to Scotland and in central Virginia near where we are, there are a lot of wineries. We did a bunch of uh, tours of nearby wineries for all these massive uh, climate controlled warehouses. And you, you need that for wine, right? It can't get too hot. can't get too humid. can't get too cold or, or dry. And maybe being a finance guy, the, uh, the costs <laughs> for that are massive. Right to have climate controlled warehouses, and it's like a huge like Costco or a Home Depot. Right, I mean, the, the the cost for those those systems, let alone the operating costs year to year to keep them running, is huge. I, I to be honest, it was really the, like the scale of it that, that was really intimidating. It's like, why are we going to be spending so much money on building these climate control systems? And there was a group that was doing very very well at the time called Cavalan. Uh, out of Taiwan, as we were starting to launch the distillery, it's like, all right, these guys are doing it in a hot climate, and they're they're embracing the climate. They're not trying to, you know, have these climate controlled warehouses. And so we found the guy that was uh, their consultant, uh, Dr. Jim Swan. Big difference was that while they have very hot summers and pretty warm winters, we have hot summers and cold winters. And Dr. Swan came over to Virginia a few times and uh, gave us his uh, secret recipe which wasn't that big of a secret. I can tell you exactly what it is. But, you know, his, his big philosophy, and he told me this, you know, I picked him up at Dulles Airport, you know, driving from, you know, Washington, D.C. area down to, to central Virginia. He told me everything we needed to know, like, by the time we got to the site. But uh, the big philosophy was, you know, you have to embrace the local climate. If you were trying to make something that tasted like it was aged in Scotland, well, why didn't you build a distillery in Scotland, right? <laughs> Nonsense. I remember him being a little pissed off, you know, like the notion of like, okay, so you're going to be doing this where you have like these unique assets where it's humid. Is it humid? You know, in Scotland or even like the areas of Japan where they're aging stuff, do you have these huge temperature shifts? You know what happens to wood when it gets very hot, when it gets very cold, it moves up and down. You're, you're, you're in the same country as, you know, a bourbon climate, you know, it's, it's central Virginia, not that far away. And so he was, he was insulted by this idea that we were going to, uh, you know, artificially create a maturation environment. And uh, from there, he just kind of gave us the recipe of here's the distillate, here's the um, the cask recipe. That's how we kind of took something that was, you know, large and risky and said, okay, we're going to follow a recipe that somebody that really knows what they're doing is going to guide us to the right direction. We're not going to try to, you know, reinvent the wheel. We're going to take, you know, best techniques and traditions from you know, the old world and Dr. Swan and use his, his way to adjust them to the new world. And, 
it's it's worked out for us. So those very first barrels, was that something, mm-hmm. I mean, I always laugh at the story about Garrison Brothers. I don't know if you've ever heard it with the heat, but when they okay. first ran their still, they locked it in the rickhouse, put, put a lock uh-huh. on the door, locked it up and said, we're not going to come back for six months because they were afraid they would start drinking their own whiskey <laughs> and all that fun stuff. Plato, know thyself. Came back in six months all the whiskey had either leaked or evaporated because of the Texas heat. And so they just, Dan had a breakdown, a whole bunch of stuff like depression of, we just wasted all this money that went in the, you know, and then they had to go learn. They had to go talk to people and say, okay, what do you think we should do to keep the barrels? You know, cause it's basically, it's so hot that the, the wood was expanding so much. It was just causing everything to leak out. The barrels weren't staying together. So they had to do a whole lot of work and figure it out to embrace that Texas heat, which is essentially the same thing that he was telling, you know, Dr. Swan was telling you. But I almost wonder, did he say like, yeah, you're going to have to keep a couple barrels aside in the beginning and taste them constantly to see how this whiskey changes month to month. And then at a certain point, week to week. Yeah, so you know, I'll tell you what, our, our marketing folks will be all pissy at me, but and and tell them that pissy at me. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, it, it, I, I said earlier, you know, my dad was a big data guy, and I, I tend to be very data driven and analytics driven. And I like to say I take the fun out of whiskey in terms of the production. Is you know, starting with Doctor Swan, we did twice a week. We would get spectral chromatography and we would get you know these these different analysis of the uh, distillate straight off the the stills and there would be 37 metrics that we get started twice a week then we did it every other week and now we do it like once a month it shows you okay here's exactly what's coming off the stills here's you know the different esters here's the different you know compounds that are coming off and rather than i guess having a feel for it we were really trying to to do something where we were following a very exact recipe and it was interesting that, you know, one of the first times, maybe the second or third time I talked to, to Dr. Swan, I remember I was at my father-in-law's house. It was around Christmas and uh, my father-in-law was involved with the business. I was heading to the airport uh, later that afternoon, but he and I spoke with Dr. Swan and my father-in-law asked a really good question. He said, well, you know, you're giving us all these recipes and we're going through this production. How are we going to know every day, right? That like we're making the right distillate that's going to, you know, thrive in this climate. If we don't have an expert like you at the end of the stills every day. And he had this really interesting uh, kind of anecdote, metaphor, whatever the right word is. He said, well, you know, Gareth said he's going to the airport later this afternoon. Gareth is going to know he's at the airport when he gets there and he sees you know, airplanes on the ground and people, you know, getting out of cars and kissing their wives and so on. He knows he's at the airport. Wouldn't he also know he's at the airport if he, you know, took a left out of the driveway, took a right on the main road and went north in the interstate and then followed the, the exits for the uh, the airport? If he followed all the steps on the way, well, he doesn't have to see the airplanes to believe he's at the airport, right? If he got there and there was no airplanes, he'd be shocked. Because he followed every step of the way. And so if you kind of follow the right steps of exactly how you're going to get your your mash going, what your fermentation is going to look like, what your different temperatures, what your different cuts are going to look like, what your cask recipe is, then, you know, it's kind of funny. It was all a matter of faith on the front end, but now it's, it's not a matter of faith. You go into any cask, I can tell you, with the exception of a few, a few lines at Microsoft Excel, what the quality is going to be. Because we follow that exact recipe, we keep these standards, and you know we we, we got this fabulous rating of of, of ninety eight points for a single cask, and it's like great, that's a single cask. I can give you the numbers of exactly what the distillate that went in there was, exactly what the temperatures were that it aged in, and I can give you a ton of other single casks just like that. Now, of course, the the, the marketing people are going to be all pissy at me right now because they take all the fun out of it, but that's no. how we do it. It, it does take the fun out of it in some way. It takes the romance out of it, but it literally is how we run the business. And and I'm proud of it now because, I mean, just think about like the years and years and years of distillate that we've been putting in barrels. And, you know, we could hope and pray and go to you know church twice on Sundays to hope that it, that it tastes good one day. But 
Instead, we're, we're trying to follow a recipe to get out there on the other side. It worked. And the thing that I'm really happy is it worked. And I know it worked at scale because it, we don't just have these, these barrels that are like, you know, amazing honey barrels. A honey barrel, I go to Microsoft Excel and I can show you where all the honey barrels are. We got a bunch of them because we're very consistent. Sorry, Andrew. Sorry, Amanda. Sorry, Jessica. Those are the brand No, people. so Andrew, Amanda, <laughs> Jessica, I'm about to save it for you. Um, as someone who was an Excel trainer and geeks out over spreadsheets myself, I work in technology. I think you have to run your business that way. I, I think if you go to any of these places in Kentucky, they're running their business that way. They're not like Bardstown Bourbon Company is not leaning against the fact that they are a very automated you know, they have computers, you go there, it's out in the open, you can see it. So like for your marketing team, I don't think you have to worry about it with that. I think your marketing team also has everything they need with a son carrying on his father's legacy. Like, you know, number one, good on you for finishing his dream, but two, like doesn't hurt the brand that you <laughs> continued his dream with all due respect. I hope you don't take that the wrong well, way. And, and to do it and to do it in the way. No, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, right? Because you, we, we could, you know, blow blow smoke up people's asses and be like, ooh, and we stand at the bottom of the stills and taste it. No, dad wouldn't have done that. I mean the stills weren't running when dad was alive. Dad, maybe you do it for a camera, right? And maybe you might find me do it for a camera, right? But in reality, it's that we try to figure out what are we gonna make. And how are we going to make it? And let's do it at scale. And let's try to make it good, not because we're going to guess and throw a bunch of darts at the wall, but because we, we think we have a recipe, we, we believe in it, and it worked. And also, when it comes to these bigger distilleries, once you get to like a Jim Beam or you get to a Jack Daniels, like they need to make Jack Daniels every single time. And yeah. if yeah. you think that there is not a level in per- of precision to make Jack Daniels, Jack Daniels every single time, like I-, I got a bridge in Brooklyn, I'd love to sell you. So yeah. I don't think anybody is running away from that. It's also just making sure that you have the ability to still do your experimental stuff. Like that's where you're not taking the readings yet. I mean, well, let's yeah. be honest, you're still taking them in case you decide to do it again. So you have some stuff to compare it to, but I mean, if you, if you want to guess like the, the name of the file in, in Excel of like the experiments, um, here's the thing about experiments. If experiments, if you're going to have an experiment that goes right, guess what? You're going to have a ton that goes wrong. And so I was, I don't know if I gave you the cast recipe yet. It's uh, hopefully you're not recording. We say it on the tour. It's on the website. It's 25% sherry, 25% SDR. That's the shape toast repair of wine casks. And then 50% bourbon. That's not exactly what it is because we do 1% of just experimental casks, right? So we do about 1,200, 1,400 casks a year. Um, so it's still a good number of, you know, 12, 14 casks that are just weird. Of those weird ones, the reality is, is that most of them are going to be gross, right? You got to take a risk, right? And so it's like, uh, how about brandy? Like the, all the different types of brandy. They're like inert. It doesn't do anything. You know, we have tons of those. So it's like, oh, keep it, keep it in the back there. It's going to get good one day. Peach or brandy like, is great, by the way. Just, I think that's a very underrated blender. Well, it's, it's a uh. random thing, but, but, and unfortunately none of ours were peach. Um, but like, you know, we, we get sold with like these eight different types of rum casks and there's a few, and I'm not going to mention them by name that like turn out fabulously. There's others where it's like, oh my God, why did we ever put, we, can we just throw it away? No, 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 no. You don't throw it away. Just leave it in the warehouse. We should throw it away. It is gross. I think it's poison. But yeah. I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have things that, that turn out funky that way. So I mean, with, with the experimental stuff, I mean, my, my big thought is that you, you really have to invest you know, maybe 10 barrels and maybe we have two barrels that are pretty good. And the other ones are interesting for the sake of being interesting, which I'm not a big fan of, right? It's like, Ooh, taste this. <laughs> how is it? No, 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 no. Taste this. No, no. But how do you feel about it? Ooh, you tell me taste it. I don't want to influence you. You should taste it. And then tell me. What you think. <laughs> yeah. As I'm thinking about this though, like there are those weird ones and, and just hear me out like Stranahan snowflake. 
is yeah. a whole bunch of weird barrels that when you put them together end up being really good. So I almost yeah. think like it's keep it in the back because on its own, eh, but like we put it with a tequila finish and we put it with some it, other it, it, stuff. It might go into this delicious, you know, pie at one point. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's, what's also beautiful about like things like that, like a Solera. Like I, I was uh, throwing out there way back that we had BHW batch four and it was like this crazy Frankenstein thing. They got horrible and it got horrible in a way of like, Oh my God, we don't have product. The color went funny. It got all pink on us. And, you know, we just had weird things that went in. We, we were working on a bottler, did a weird filtration on us. And then we kept adding things and got worse. And then we added other things and got better. And then we kept doing more and more stuff. And it just turned into this Frankenstein. To this day, it's my favorite batch. It just had this really nice, like creamy kind of texture of, I don't want to say that it was, it was just, you know, so much stuff that, that it kind of blended together into nothing, but it, it just finally worked. And we didn't think it was going to work. I mean, I thought it was like, oh my God, we just have to make this not poison people. Uh, <laughs> and then it turned into, then it turned into one of our best, right? As long as and, your cuts are uh, good, you're not going to poison anyone. That's the beautiful thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's, and you know what? I have that written in like a beautiful neon sign above my bed. And my wife hates it, but damn it, that that quote is what we keep. I love, by the way, just a side note. So you probably are not like listening to dad's drinking bourbon all the time and that's okay but your sense of humor is right in line with mine so we had tim heisler on from jim beam and he had just seen raging as the machine and so i low-key deadpan put in 27 rage against the machine song titles into the normal conversation it took me a whole lot to edit because tim was cracking up after every single one of them but like i would be like yeah you know freddie freddie know at jim beam is calm like a bomb you know his dad has his distillery he has his now he has freedom there's no shelter he could go do whatever yeah. he wants i mean like i love that just deadpan dad joke tone and i just have to tell you how much i appreciate it i appreciate it too you know uh, our our uh, stellar master a guy named brian hersey he's an amazing guy he is a huge Rage Against the Machine fan. And it's just so awkward because like I've told him many times, like I personally I identify like as the machine. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I feel like I'm the man, right? And, but like, you have you know your beard like, yeah, does not make you look like the man. Like your beard makes oh, you no, look like no, you're no, ready. No, no, no. This is a little baby beard. No, 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 no. You should see like Brian's beard is like <laughs> and uh yeah. So it's great fun. Anytime I hear him with a, with a song like that, it's like, I, that's offensive to me and my people who are part of the machine. The, the people that are doing pivot tables up in. The- yeah, 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 yeah. If you like Microsoft Excel, if, if you feel the way about blending tanks that Brian does, then you feel the way about like a pivot table that I do. And that makes me part of the machine. Anyways. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but undergrad, I was comp sci. And then I've been an Excel monkey most of my life. I, uh, I enjoy it. I love it. And, uh, I, you know, by, by day I'm a finance guy. I, I, I do, uh, Excel just, you know, better than I make whiskey. I suppose I don't actually make whiskey. The other guys make whiskey. Well, that, just... That's what I was going to ask you. Cause you have this distillery. So in the beginning, yeah. while you were getting the people in, did you have to go in and get your hands dirty? Did you try yeah. it? Yeah, no, I, I did. And, and so, you know, you were asking earlier about like different, um, influencers are not in the new new sense but in uh people that kind of helped us get it get us going so dr swan was the guy behind the recipe you know he was a big maturation expert but uh in terms of the engineering of actually building the distillery that's really important on the front end so a guy that had worked with dr swan for many years named harry coburn uh harry was the um i guess uh, production manager of all morrison thomer distilleries at the height of his career he retired in 1994 and he is just dog shit at retiring uh given that he's still working today right i tell him that every time he's what 86 years of age and he came and uh was a big part of of just the design work of the distillery and then once it got started he was there with dr swan a few times I was there with him the first time we did a double shift, meaning we just did you know back to back distillations. I like to tell it, you know, the story to, to all the distillers on the team is that nobody on the team has the level of accreditation that I have from 
you know, world-renowned distiller like Harry Coburn, who's gone from, you know, 45 years in distilling, you know, lived in Isla for 27 years. And he took me aside and told me, you know, after two different shifts, I mean, nobody has anything like this on our team that, you know, Gareth, you are not cut out for this. (laughs) This is not for you. You should probably not do this. I took his advice and I haven't touched the stuff since. And so uh, that was in uh, late uh, 15, maybe maybe early 16. You know, you like to take the uh, advice of experts. And if uh, <laughs> 80-odd-year-old uh, distiller says you should never touch these things again, then you, uh, you do what he says. And the whiskey is better for it. So that brings up a great point. Let's actually talk about this whiskey, this courage and conviction. There are three different types you could tell me all about them. There's a bourbon cask, a sherry cask, and a cuvee cask. Yeah. So they uh, they approximate the three main ingredients of what we put in our flagship, but that's just effectively what we have in the warehouse, right? So uh, when we're making our distillate, distillate's all the same. Put in those three different types of casks, 50% bourbon, 25% sherry, uh, and then 25% what we call cuvee. They're a Dr. Swan specialty, uh, shave, toast, and rechar cask, S-T-R. But if you just put STR in a bottle, people don't really know what you're talking about. So we had to come up with a fancy name like Cuvée. I don't know. I mean, if you had a better name, we'll go with it, man. Uh, you know, Cuvée sounded pretty good, right? Better than STR. You could call it so, the Swan Cask. Ooh. So, like, do we have to pay you if we start calling it the Swan uh, Cask? You can just like, call it the Swan Cask. I, I absolve myself of all. All right. So, so it's 25% uh, of the uh, Swan Edwards Casks. And <laughs> we. Uh, that's that 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 really that's what I'm drinking right now, and it's uh, I, I it's my favorite. It's it's kind of the special sauce. It's um, I, I only know of one or two distilleries that have ever used them that aren't part of uh, the the Doctor Swan Cabal. The Cabal of uh, Doctor Swan distilleries includes Cavalan, uh, Taiwan, Milk and Honey, and Tel Aviv. Let's see, you have Kilkaman, you have Penderin. And uh, Cotswolds, the big ones he worked with, including ourselves. Just, sorry, just a side note, but Cavalon had a, there was a distro pick here in Nashville, okay. and it was called Tyrannosaurus yeah. Rex. And hmm. it was one of the best whiskeys. I mean, this happened a few years, it was pre-pandemic, and everybody was okay. like, oh shit, you try this T-Rex? Like, And they're like, this stuff is like it's Cavalon. Like it's not. It was good. There, there is some yeah. great stuff coming from there. But uh, sorry, I, I cut you off just to talk about that. But I still remember that all the time. There, there's some. No, we 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 love those guys, and uh, I mean, we learned a lot from them. And and you know, I mean, candidly, we kind of walk in their footsteps in terms of the distillate and uh, and the cask style and everything. But uh, but yeah, those are the three main types: uh, bourbon, sherry, and cuvee. Uh, Cuvée being the kind of interesting one um, of the sherry, uh, it's split into much like the uh, opening lines of uh, Julius Caesar in three parts. God damn it. I don't know why I nerded out on that. Uh, so Oloroso, PX, and uh, Fino. PX uh, stands for Pedro Jimenez. Do you know what Pedro in Spanish means? Well, but but it's the, it's the Spanish equivalent of what English name? Pedro. Peter. That's right. And so that's exactly where we get our peated casks. That's where Isla gets their peated casks is from Pedro Jimenez, Pete Jimenez. Interesting. No, 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 that's bullshit. But uh, imagine if it was. I, I mean, uh, do you know what the... San Diego stands for? <laughs> it's the same, the same vein. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do love that you sent the little pack here. And I knew, I told you this, we were going to go and go and go and we, I realize it's 1130 your time now, but I love how you sent this out. I've had courage and conviction before the blend, everything put together, but I haven't had the component parts. So when your team reached out and they go, well, do you want the full bottle or do you want the component parts? I'm like, I'm kind of really interested. I like blending. I like the science of blending. I don't think blending... You know, I think if seven, eight years ago, blending still had a negative connotation. And I feel like it's yeah. like that has made this switch. And there's so many enthusiasts that want to blend. And we're getting into now the science of blending on the, the bourbon side. The malt side has always been into blending. Everywhere in the rest mm-hmm. of the world, blending is not a taboo word. It is yeah. just what you do when you mingle barrels together. But I find like this bourbon cask, 
almost on its own is like a beer like it is very much like yeah. an ipa like it it's not too over the top in its taste but yeah. component on its own like and if you're thinking okay where is the the 50 percent? where is the bulk of this blend going to be it's going to be yeah. the least of, and and this isn't a bad way of saying it it's the least offensive of yeah, the, the three line. yeah yeah, the, the baseline, the backbone. You know what's so interesting is like just over the years thinking about like the the anticipation of all right, everybody's going to be drinking these casks, and like here's what people are going to like because obviously people are going to like exactly what I like, which is not true. But uh, but then it's like when people like are going to be giving you their opinion on the three different casks, you can't like all of them, right? And you can't like like if you like all of them, they're not going to like them all equally, right? And so it's like your kids where it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I happen to be huge on the, on the cuvee, the SDRs. That's awesome. Within the sherries, there's some different things. And the bourbons like to me tend to be kind of like, okay, that's the base. That's it. And then it turns out simply on the sales numbers, <laughs> people like the bourbon. And it's like, well, dummies, like, you know, we do more exciting stuff. But that's like saying, like, you know, to like the kindergarten teacher, it's like, well, I got a second grader too, you know, because <laughs> I do have a kindergartner and the kindergartner is awesome. The second grader, I'll take it. Really. It's, it's funny here. <laughs> it is funny here, though, because if, if bourbon is the base, the sherry is the yeah. outlier, right? The sherry is the one that's punching you in the face. Yeah. The flavor is just super, super bold. And yeah. I would say I could see why you would like the cuvee because the cuvee is in the middle. Like it's still got some boldness to it, but it's not like I feel like Sherry is like those old cartoons where it's like the guy's holding him by the neck and he's just slapping him across the yeah. face back and forth. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. I get with this yeah. Sherry. It's just super, super bold. And yeah. I mean, I wish I had three hours with you because and i've talked about this again for those of you listening we've, we've talked about this on the podcast before american whiskey like bourbons and rice i'm not talking about american single malt but just american whiskey in general they go finish in in sherry and it's like hey i have this px sherry or i have oloroso sherry and i'm finishing in wine casks why am i doing that because that's what scotch did and I yeah, almost yeah. feel like the the corn and the rye mixed together with the barley, like it just a uh, nine times out of ten, I have yet to find a wine finished American whiskey that I'm like woohoo because I feel like that with the sweetness of bourbon and the dryness yeah. of wine, like some of these things don't go together, but a hundred percent barley yeah, yeah. and wine. It, it works out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's just thinking about like exactly what you said about bourbons. Well, Angel's Envy works really nicely because it's a port wine finish, right? Where you got that sugary sweet port there, right? That, that It's the that dessert wine. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a delicious drink. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, with, with, with malt whiskey, you're having a lot more of the grain come through, right? So like bourbon it has to interact with with new wood that turns it into delicious delicious bourbon you're not getting that corn right on the front end the same way you would with the single malt where or any malted barley where you're getting that grain really screaming through to the end and so trying to avoid getting too much wood on the front end but on the other hand that's why i also do like the, the cuvee it's it's not new wood but it is kind of right so like you know shaving it and then uh, you know toasting it and there's a char to it if there's a char that's happening on top, we're kind of, I don't know, it sounds like we're, we're, we're trying to uh, just be cheap about the matter of <laughs> like refreshing uh, oak. But it is kind of interesting how it ends up a little more in the middle of like an American whiskey and, and a Scottish whiskey where, you know, suddenly we do have some of those darker, and the color comes through a lot more, you know, it looks closer to a bourbon. And we get a lot more of those, you know, sweeter notes out of the wood than you would out of, um, you know, traditional uh, Scottish uh, single malt. For people that are listening, I mean, nobody is trying to cut corners by getting used barrels. I mean, that's just if, if that is the parameter <laughs> that you're given, you go for the parameter yeah. that's given. How many yeah. uses do you get out of your barrels before they kind of uh, 
it's time for them to go. Yeah, so we try not to cut uh, corners on the barrels. What we do is we we spell whiskey without an e because the uh, the labelers uh, they charge you by the letter, right? And so if you drop the e, it's a bit cheaper. My as long as do you don't use those today. damn parentheses, yeah. I'm okay. Like I, I'm just <laughs> I know, I know. the one, my one pet peeve in whiskey is the like where you have the w h i s k and then the e in the parentheses. Whiskey. <laughs> yeah yeah it's exactly like, so we we dropped the e and uh you know i genuinely i can give you an email where it like has three exclamation points of like you're going to charge us this and we're dropping the e but it is cheaper for the labels but you don't cheap out in the cast so we uh remember i was mentioning that that um experimental uh, zone we've done uh second fills in those they are not working so by second fills i mean use barrels right so you know, terminology we use FB ones would be the first time we're filling FB two, FB two, FB three, and then same on STRs. And so we have a collection of uh, barrels that we dumped. We didn't. We only started dumping in 2019, so it hasn't been that long. And when you look at uh, how they're developing over time, they are not developing very well. And so, I mean, what that really tells us is that we're really getting all of the everything that the barrel has to give on the first go around. And so if we're trying to do it again, uh, it's not an economic endeavor at that point. You know, we've already gotten it all spent. The way I always like to explain it is uh, this never works for people in the UK because they don't have uh, back decks, right? But in, in Kentucky, I imagine you have a, a, or I'm sorry, Tennessee, you have a back deck. I have a back deck here. You see the, the expansion and contraction during the, the winter and the summer, same thing happening in a cask. You do that a few times with a used cask, there's just nothing left in the wood for a second use. I almost wonder if it has to do with the climate too. Cause if you like the Scotch folks, they can reuse the barrel and it's also colder. So, you know, the heat is not pushing the whiskey into that. Yeah. Yeah. So it just hasn't gotten the workout. It hasn't. And and so the barrels aren't doing as much. So you can use it two, three times because the juice is not going into the wood like it would here. So maybe that is something like it's almost like if you, did keep one in an air-conditioned room a cheap way of doing uh climate control it's like we're gonna put one barrel yeah in an air-conditioned room for six months opposed to out on the floor for six months we're gonna see what happens yeah but but then i mean here comes to the controversial thing with with american single malts is why don't we have these massive age statements you know like a standard being 12 years or 18 years you know, on the one side, you could say, well, obviously, very nascent industry, but it's also because they don't really improve after a certain amount of time. And you've already, you know, had a huge amount of evaporation. And so, you know, I mean, it, it's not terribly dissimilar to bourbon. Once we get to like six, seven, eight years, we're not really getting good maturation, right? Yeah, we can we can sit around and, and, and put an age statement on a bottle, but we're not really getting huge quality gains out of waiting much longer in, in Scotland where you would. I mean, I agree with you 100%. And, and there's so many people that love MGP and go for MGP. And I always have a lot of questions. And this is the when you get to a certain point in your whiskey journey, like I know too much where I could be an idiot and I could be somewhat dangerous at the same time. And it's like knowing MGP, knowing it's a cement rickhouse, the proof goes down at MGP when it ages there. But also like, I also know that 11 years are probably like my peak for, for MGP. Once it gets over 11 years, I think it's too oaky personally. Yeah. But I also then have the question, like I've had a 14 year MGP that was aged at Traverse City in Michigan that was really good because it was cold, you know, it was in that cold weather climate and it wasn't in Nashville or Kentucky or even Indiana where you're going to have that really, really, really hot summer and the really cold winter. So where was it distilled? Where was it aged? has yeah. a big part of it. How long did you age it in that climate? And I think yeah. that's where, so for Americans that kind of look at a whiskey, go older is better. It's like, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Right. And I, I am optimistic that that's slowly kind of going away, right? Like we've gone through the phase of like consumers getting, you know, enough to be dangerous, right? Of like, oh, higher age is better. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're kind of going through that phase into, well, no, better is better, right? Regardless of what the, what the age is. And that's happening a little bit naturally as the Scots are, you know, all their massive age statements are going over to Asia. 
and you know they're outpricing them in the Western world, and you know you have people like Brooke Laddie, which are kind of taking it head on, saying you know hey we're we're getting rid of these age statements because we're going to put older ages and younger ages together. The law says that we can only do the youngest age. And we're just going to tell you right now, there's going to be a bunch of 17, 18, and some six, seven year, and we can't put an age statement on it. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's it's going to the consumer kind of thinking about a more nuanced approach to understanding age. Well, and that's what, you know, like Wild Turkey Rare Breed recently had some 16 year stuff in it. You don't see a lot of four roses that are 20 years old. I know there were some charity ones that recently just came out, but you could have 15 to 20 year old four roses in the artist formerly known as yellow label which is now the new right. label bottle that yeah. is under 20 bucks but these distilleries need a place and eventually you're going to be there your production is too high you need a mm-hmm. dumping ground and it's not right. saying it in a bad way you, but it's like we call that a blending in ground yeah. not a dumping ground but, <laughs> but I, I know exactly what you're saying yeah exactly it's like we have this whiskey we don't want to lose it it's it's worth yeah. money to us we have to put it somewhere oh we can blend it yeah. out in this courage and conviction yeah but unless you have you know if, if age statements maybe, are there maybe it needs something much younger that that's going to make a lovely balance to it and you know you're going to have two things that maybe independently aren't going to be that awesome but together are going to be unbelievable but if you go to the age statement world it's like well we should probably have two crummy things and one of them is going to have a massive price on it because it has a huge age statement on it i get it what else is yeah. in store and this is great i love the fact that i got to taste the components this time I've had courage and conviction before. It is a very famous on dad's drinking bourbon that I'm the one who will enjoy scotch and single malts and Irish whiskey. And there we go. So whenever those things come in, Zeke just goes like, Edwards, I'm going to trust you on this one. I'm a fan of, of courage and conviction. And I'm not just saying that because Gareth is on. You've heard me say that on shows before y'all. I appreciate that. Absolutely. What else is coming down the line for Virginia Distillery? What can we look forward to? Anything new or just kind of stay the course and get bigger? No, no. We have some new stuff out there. And it's just what I was talking about earlier with the the experimental lines. Um, you know, the, the good and bad of it is that you find these like awesome, awesome casks, but you can't do a lot of them because if you did a lot of them, imagine if they didn't turn out well. So we have some really cool stuff. We have the Spanish oak sherry that uh, we're looking at for next year. We might do it the year after that. We're back and forth between that and some Tio Pepe uh, sherry. Uh, we have Madeira casks. We have Marsala casks. And then the rums, we have some rums that aren't working. We have some awesome rums. We're trying to take it to take it a little slow. You know, we only started two years ago with uh, CNC, Encouraging Conviction. So uh, there are some, some of us internally that are just very excited to get everything out to market as soon as we can. But others of us who say, well, the distributors want us to be slow about it. Don't tell the distributors that. Uh, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, we got some cool stuff that's coming out and, uh, and if you come to the distillery, we'll, we'll show you some of the stuff that sounds interesting, that doesn't taste good. And if you're in the market, we'll only send the stuff that actually tastes good. I think that uh, the fun thing, I mean, I really love the model that Chattanooga Whiskey does, where they have their experimental distillery, but then everything they're doing is just a distillery-only release with the experimental yeah. stuff. So it's like, all yeah. right, yeah, we did this. Uh, if you want it, come to the distillery and get it. And then that way you're taking distro out of it. But then the same time is if somebody decides they have this expression and it gets so much good right. feedback, it's like, all right, well, maybe we got to put some more of that down. Yeah, exactly. And then and then wait a wait a hell of a long time for it to age too. So Yeah. That's the hard part about those experiments, right? If they work, it's like, oh, we should have put more down. If they don't work, we shouldn't have put so much down. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, at least you could say you did it and you have a pipeline to it in the future. It's it's yeah. It's better to have that I prediction. That, how about this? I mean, the marketing people already hate me, but yeah, imagine they this. love you. What if any distiller they do, of course, because I will fire them. Uh, no, that's not why. No, no, I don't want them to fear me. I want them to be afraid of how much they love me, Michael Scott. Yes. But, Would I rather be feared uh, or loved? Both. I want people to fear how fear much they love me. Love me. Um, but all right, how about I'm just thinking of this on the spot here. How about this? What if any given distillery, right, took their experimental lines and then they they found like the delicious bottles, right? And they're like, here's what we're going to sell. 
And then they also went with like all the shitty things that like they, they tried and failed and then like put those like alongside of it. And like, listen, we had to make all these shitty products so that this awesome product came out. Right. It would, it would give people appreciation. But right? enough, like, I've oh, had this conversation. That's how it works. I had that's this conversation works. literally this week with someone and it was, yeah. we don't see all the times that somebody fails. So you wonder why like whiskey people get entitled for things and they have this attitude. It's like, you yeah. don't see, they tried a hundred things and all these hundred things suck. Horrible things, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Imagine that, like a tasting. I mean, I, I always have to go through the regulatory stuff. It's like you can't just bring everything out of the warehouse. But that would be awesome to have a tasting which says, hey, here are these 12 weirdo barrels that we tried. And we have one of them that's unbelievable. Now you're going to have to drink the other 11. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there is famously, and it's not there anymore. I think they finally ran out of it. Bad bourbon on the Heaven Hill tour. And so you would do the Heaven okay. Hill tasting tour. And so Parker, he would only nose. He wouldn't taste the whiskey. So he would he'd do everything off of nosing. And it was this 24-year-old whiskey. It was at a high floor in the Rick. And it smells great. I mean, you put it in your glass. Yeah. You smell it. You're like, this nose is phenomenal. You taste it. And you're like, this is the shittiest whiskey I've ever had in my whole entire life. And I wish I was never born. It was so hot and burnt <laughs> and just... It was awful, and he never yeah. had it because he didn't taste it. He just nosed it and just thought, like, this is going to be a great barrel, set it aside, and it's on the tour for being bad bourbon because once the tasters got involved, they were like, yeah, Parker, this sucks. Yeah, once the rubber hits the road, right? But I do think it would be fun to have an experimental tour. Like, So distilleries take notice if you're listening. I think it would be a really cool tour to be like, do you want to try, like, not all of the whiskey is going to be good and we don't want you to come away thinking everything is good, but we want you to find the journey to how we got to this release. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a private equity firm, a, um, a venture capital co uh, firm called Bessemer Ventures, and they have something called the anti-portfolio, which is all of the places that they uh, had the opportunity to invest where they failed. Not they failed, but they turned down the investment for one way or another. And it includes things like Google and Facebook and YouTube and all this sort of thing. It's interesting because it's humble that they put that out there of like, hey, we've done a great job, but here are the things that we failed at. And uh, I, I think that would be great for a distillery to do that because it, it, it really shows everybody that, you know, you, you, in order to get something good, you have to fuck up a bunch of times. Yeah. I appreciate that. I also appreciate you. I can't wait to have you on again. You know, we're going to have to check in and see where the progress is. Right now, I'm going to let you go to bed. You Thank gotta, you. Appreciate that. You have a day of work tomorrow. It's almost midnight. But folks can find you at vadistillery.com. It is a family affair over there. Right on the, the leadership page, you got your mom and you and your wife, like everybody together. So we love that it is a family affair over at Virginia Distillery. Uh, make sure to check out Courage and Conviction. Make sure to check out the VHW. Anything else you want me to tell the people? No, just uh, thank you, John, for everything you do and uh, for getting the good word out to the people. Awesome. Go ahead and find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Please leave us an open and honest review, just like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Good old Nashville, Tennessee. Cheers. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. It yeah, was a pleasure. Nice. All right. That was good times, man.